Now, before we get into our passage, um, you can go ahead and flip there if you'd like. It's 1 Corinthians. We'll be starting in chapter 12, verse 4. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 4. Um, I just want to acknowledge where you all are, because as you may have expected, this passage is going to speak to all of us. Not just those who have agreed to serve in some official responsibility, but all of us in the body of Christ. And I know that we're all coming from different places within that. There are some of you who have been very involved at this church for a long time, and you have spent a lot of time serving and working. There are some of you who are more recently getting involved. There are some of you who are not involved because your life outside of church has demanded every last inch of you. And you cannot fathom what, with what time, with what energy would I do anything else. There are some of you who have not been involved because you have social anxieties. You just don't see yourself in front of people or really, don't really care to, to be involved in all that. Some of you have not been involved because you're not sure where or how. You just don't know quite where you fit. So I know that we're all coming from different places. As we enter this text, my hope is, because I think that's the the thrust of the text, is that we all walk away from here with some clarity about our involvement at the church. That each of you would walk away clearer about where you fit, what you should be doing. And that, that God would empower you to do it, to fulfill it. Now before I read the text, can is it working? Can you hear me? Okay. I can never tell if the confused looks I'm getting are because the audio is not right or if it's just I'm just not making sense. We're going to start at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. And um, before we do, if you're not familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, is Paul writing again? We spent a lot of time with Paul in the summer as we went through Philippians. Paul is writing to a church he had planted a while back. Unlike the Philippian church... The Corinthian church is not doing great. There's a lot of uh, trouble, a lot of conflict. There's people in there who are loyal to one teacher and other people who are loyal to another. And there's conflict there. There's immorality. All the way is extremist incest. Okay, sorry. I'm not going to mention it anymore. So he spent the first 11 chapters of this prior to where we're going to pick up, correcting them, just trying to instruct them, pointing out where they are sinning against each other. And now he's turning to a more positive note in chapter 12. He's going to try to teach them in a way that will bring them together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all people, in all persons. What he's saying is, you all are very diverse. You're very different. Our church is made up of roughly 100 people. There's not, there are not two of those who are the same. There are different gifts, there are different propensities, different uh, passions, and different places for each of you to serve. 
different expressions of the Holy Spirit within each of you to serve. And it's beautiful. It's, if our church was a piece of music, it would not be a unison piece. It would be a harmony piece. Each of you, we have roughly 100 people, so that means, in one sense, there's roughly 100 different ministries going on. Because each of you has your own unique fingerprint on the ministry of our church. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, you guys are warring with each other, but you're all one. You're all rivers flowing from the same mountain to the same stream. All your gifts and your passions are coming from the Holy Spirit. They're all flowing to the same goal. The advance of the gospel, the ministry of God. So he's trying to bring them together in unity. Now, I think we've been blessed with unity in our church. Uh, but I was trying to think of an example. And I thought of a pretty good example from the larger church. Now, how many of you, you can raise your hands, have heard of Reformed Theology? Okay, a couple. Now, how many of you have heard of the Emergent Church? Okay, well, so, I expect to be a little more. That's not disappointment in my voice, I just thought it would be more. These two groups do not mix well together right now. If you read the authors from these two, it's different, like, theological camps. I know you guys aren't all reading theology books all the time, but it's, it's different schools of thought. Different schools of thought that are influencing millions of pastors in America. So as they do, it's, it's different groups of pastors that, that just don't mix well. And right here in Charlotte, any one of my friends can have different ways of thinking about us. You have the Reformed perspective, which is, is pretty, uh, what's the word, pretty bookish. It's pretty uh, serious about scripture and teaching and doctrine. And, you know, doing church right by the Bible. Then you have the emergent folks, which are more about the heart and serving the poor and the community. I think that if we could understand what Paul is saying, that some of these differences wouldn't matter so much. We're different people with different gifts, different passions, but we're serving the same God. Some of us may be more in tune with the doctrine side of things. Some more in tune with the service to the poor side of things. We're all together. Okay? Get where he's going with it? Okay, so let's pick back up in, in, in verse 7 here. We're going to cover quite a lot of ground this morning. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay. Now some of you edge forwards in your seat a little bit when you heard things like prophecy and tongues. Some of you want me to dwell on these Issues. These are hot topics. The gifts of the Spirit. But I'm not going to. And the reason I'm not going to, I don't think that's the main purpose of this passage. Um, there are other lists of gifts of the Spirit, and not doing necessarily the exact same thing as here. I don't think he's trying to give an exhaustive list. These are the gifts of the Spirit. Pick yours. He's trying to make a point, a larger point, that God has given each of you. 
a manifestation of the Spirit. He wants himself out in different gifts, but not all the same Spirit. Now, there's three lists in our passage this morning, and I'm breezing past this one, I'm going to breeze past the next one too. We're going to spend a lot of time on the third list. So I'm sorry I can't satisfy your, uh, your curiosity about telling the prophecy this morning. We're going to have to move, move forward. Look at verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually just as He lives. That's His main point here. It's one Spirit that's given to do all these things. I forget, this is the, my first point here in this sermon. You, 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 each of you, is uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being part of the body of Christ. That's our little tagline here. For the body of Christ, united in work, you are part of it. You need to get Now, verse uh, Pick up verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, male or female, young or old, well-educated, not well-educated, we are all one in the body of Christ. He's fighting for unity here. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. I want you to look down for a second. Just look down at your body sitting there. Everybody brought theirs with them this morning. <laughs> look down. Again, I, I do see you. Look down. <laughs> Just look at your hand. Okay? Look at your hand. Your dominant hand, not right hand. What part of that hand would you give up? Which knuckle would you do without? Or which finger would you do without? <laughs> I said a pinky finger. You could. Could you do everything that you, you do now as well without it? Every little part of that is really vital. Really, if any part of your hands aren't working right, you can't hardly do anything. Even if it's just it's there, it's just painful. If any part of it is malfunctioning or not working, you just can't function. I mean, you can do a little bit, but not but if it was working. That's what Paul is saying. You are all part of the body of Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit has gifted you as He has. Now again, we are a church of around 100 people. Our average attendance on Sunday mornings, I didn't do the math, but I would say it's around 70, 75, maybe. Um, some people aren't here because they're shut-ins. They can't come. Some people just aren't here. Some people are here, but they don't know where they belong in the body, so they're not really doing anything. They're, they're more recipients of the ministry. They're not part of the body. They're, they're just recipients. God gifted each of you to be a functioning member of this body. So, the big point number one, you are each uniquely gifted for the body of Christ. Big point number two, 
We need you. We need you like we need each of our fingers, each of our knuckles to work properly. We need you like we need all of our blood vessels to, to allow blood to flow right. We need you. Try to think of uh, some example or some comparison to make this clear. And um, let's just say you have me up here preaching, and then you have those who clean up after Wednesday nights. I use that example because I don't know who cleans up after Wednesday nights. I'm never there. I'm now with the youth, so I can't be like bragging on anybody. Which one of those two would you do without at the church? If you had to pick one, which one seems more vital? You might. Think, well, we can do without the cleanup after Wednesday night. Well, could we? I mean, it'd be one Wednesday, and the church would read. And not only would we not be able to go in there and have dinner again next Wednesday because it'd be so nasty, we wouldn't want to be in here Sunday morning because we'd be smelling the decaying food one hallway over. It's all vital. And each new member that comes is one new part of the body that must work. Or else we just don't function well. That's how the body of Christ works. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. And I'm hoping that through this text that you will get swept up into it. Okay. Let's pick back up with our text. At verse 15. If the book says, Because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, Because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which is lacked. So that there may, so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. You see the picture being painted here of how the body of Christ works? Your role is so important. It is as important as my role. Picking up at verse 27. Now you are Christ's bodies and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church... First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. What he's saying is, of all different functions, there are some that are greater, but none that are less vital than others. 
Desire the gifts. Earnestly desire the gifts. It's excellent for you to pray. I'm praying right now. Lord, what is my gift? What is my part of the church? Seek it. Desire it. That's good. That's excellent. But here is the climax of the passage. This is what I've been laboring through this to get to. The very last phrase. And I show you a still more excellent way. He's about to show us a more excellent way. Everything we've been talking about is excellent. What's coming up is more excellent, more important. The reason I breezed over those lists of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That is a devastating paragraph. It's absolutely devastating. It should stop us cold in our tracks. I mean, let's just look in here at what he's saying. Tongues. You know, I, I don't know where you all stand on the, on the spiritual gifts of tongues. Um, I worked, I think I've told you this, I worked one time with some Pentecostals who, in their mind, if you d- didn't speak in tongues, you were not a Christian. And I was just a scared little kid. I didn't know how to respond to that. You know, I just, you know, kept my mouth shut. But they were serious about it. Here he says, even if you speak with tongues, even if you, if I dropped you in Mexico and God enabled you to speak Spanish suddenly, I have taken about half a decade of Spanish classes and I still cannot speak Spanish. But God could put me in Mexico and enable me to speak Spanish so that I could proclaim the gospel. Even if I did that, if I didn't have love, if it wasn't done in love, it's nothing. Even if I did have some secret tongues prayer language between me and God, if it's not saturated with and motivated by love, it's nothing. If I could work 100 hours a week preparing those amazing sermons that are so unbelievable that your eyebrows are singed and people are calling out of here on your hands and knees because it's just overwhelmingly incredible. If it's not done with love, it's just ragged. It's just annoying. It's the same as if I had to some hands on trying to talk with love. That's what he says. It's like a noisy dog or a plain and simple. It's just ragged. Work. <clears throat> Verse 2 goes on. He says, Prophecy. Even if you were able to get up here and say, Dad, just set aside for a second. I have a word from the Lord of the people of Grove. And you you sit me down over there and close the Bible and God speaks through you. New revelation. I don't know this is happen, but I'm just saying. You are God's mouthpiece. Even that, if it's not motivated by, saturated with love, it's nothing. That's what he's saying. It's nothing. 
no thing, no worth to it. If he knew all the mysteries and all knowledge, if he responded to my challenge a couple of weeks ago, memorized every verse in the Bible, but didn't have love, it's worthless. If you can come into our youth class, we do a Q&A thing on Sunday mornings where they pop a question and then we search the Bible for the answer. If you sat in and you just knew all the answers, didn't have to open the Bible, you would quote the As great as that is, if you don't have love, it is nothing. It's worthless. In verse 3, no, 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 there's another big one in verse 2. If you muster the faith to move a mountain, if you had faith enough to move a mountain, or you could just, by your faith, move the solid rock over there beside the headquarters or something. Even that right of faith, that love, is nothing. And verse 3 goes on. If you're at home and you convince your spouse that this is the right thing to do, and you gather up all your possessions, you unplugged all your electronics, you put it in the car, all your furniture, you, you rent the truck, everything in your house, you drove it, and you gave it away to the Charlotte Rescue Mission. You can't just sell money and buy a bunch of pots to put them in your house to, to have the homes. It is impossible to do that without love. And if you did, it would be worse. It would be nothing. The terrorist verse in here says, Okay, anyone who plays with Christ, raise your hand and we'll kill you. And you said, Me, I will not forsake the name of Jesus. And you were martyred. You gave up your life. He says, I surrender my life to be burned, but do not have love if possible not. Man, nothing. And that's terrifying. That means that it is possible that all the work that we do here could amount to nothing. If not done in love, with love. And man, we fake ourselves out, don't we? There's a book that came out. I really want to read it. They had uh, two free chapters online that I read. It's called The Trellis and the Vine. I forget the author's name, but I'm plagiarizing his analogy. The book's based on the premise that the church is like a trellis and a vine. Do you know what a trellis is? Some? Yeah? Trellis is that sort of, I don't know how to describe this, like a wooden slab and vines grow up on it. I haven't read the whole book, so I'm hijacking his analogy and I may not be interpreting it the same way he does. But the basic point is, all through the church, we build these elaborate trellises. You know, we have our official board, we have our trustees, our board of Christian head, our music committee, our deacons, our deaconesses. We have our finance committee, we have our worship service, our sound people, we have our choir. We have our Sunday school teachers, we have our youth ministry, we have our young hearts, we have our Wednesday night meeting, we have our Sunday morning prayer meeting, we have our events, we have our special holiday services. That is a solid trellis. But is there anything real wrong on it? Without love, we just have an empty trellis, and nothing against the wall. But we have all this 
millennium. And just try to build on more trellis to see growth. I mean, I'm like, I want more people to come in. You know, and, and I want you to grow individually. I think it's nothing now, isn't it? I want that to happen. But it will not happen by adding on more trellis at this point. It will happen when we love. And I know. You know, we talk about love. What does that even mean? Is, that's such a fuzzy term. I probably lost most of the men. Wouldn't it be better if I just took the mic off so it just stayed at one level? Pull the mic. Mary Eye time. Is that better? Not yet? Maybe? Yes? Okay. Never preach with the pole. I'm curious what you are thinking about as I talk about how important love is. I was waiting in line last night, actually. I was making a return at a store or something. I had attended by Mary for Christmas. It didn't work out. I did pretty good this Christmas, though, overall. I all over this. But there on the counter, they were selling perfume. I cannot pronounce the name of the perfume. But it said, inspired by love. And then it had this whole paragraph of marketing lingo, which I know, I used to write those paragraphs where you just try to throw in as many good sounding words and benefits as you can on the people buy it. And then after that it said, wear it and love. <laughs> so I picture some girls writing song like, alright, red love. <laughs> what is she going to do? What does that even mean? We can't keep using words with no meaning. sing our closing song and send you out of here with the knowledge that everything you do at church really in life can be worthless without love. But you don't even know what I'm talking about, what love is. Thankfully, God does not do that to us. Instead, he moves on to a very famous description of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. Ranging from generic pleasure 
I love that meal, for instance. To intense personal attraction, I love my husband. This diversity of uses and meanings combined with the complexity of feelings involved makes love unusually difficult to consistently define, even compared to other emotional states. Did you catch the difference between the popular Wikipedia-approved definition of love and God's definition of love? Did you see the contrast there? Man thinks of it as an emotion. God thinks of it as really a heart orientation toward other people. Man thinks of it as, what am I receiving? God thinks of it as, what are you giving? And to clarify what we're talking about here. So let's just go through. Let's just go through what he's talking about. Or how he defines it. Love is patient. Are you patient? I thought I was patient until we had children. And I'm not patient. And I laugh, but it's very true. But when I think about patience, I think about Mary and I saw a perfect example of patience. We were at Walmart. I'm thinking it was a Walmart up the road here, if I remember right. Maybe it wrong. No, it was here. And we were in the return line at Walmart. Have you ever been in the return line at Walmart, especially that Walmart? And I think it was shortly after Christmas. So it was a long, it was a long line. And it was a long line of rough-looking characters. Because we were there too. <laughs> and it was taking forever. And whoever was at the front was especially taking forever. I was so far back, I don't know what the holdup was, but she had to call the manager, the, the young lady who's working, had to call the manager. And you know, the manager always is at the very other end of the store, buried 10 feet under, and has to dig his way up before he can make it over there. So it's taking forever. And people in the line are grumbling. You can see on people's faces. If you've worked retail, you know how to pick up when people are getting disrupted. People are getting disrupted. And in all that, and all the noise, there are kids in the line too, and they are just losing it. They're melting down. Everyone of them apparently missed their last five naps. And they're angry. <laughs> in the midst of the chaos, maybe you're remembering this wrong, but someone needed to use the cart, the electrical cart. It was an elderly lady. I think she was there maybe with her daughter. She needed to get on the car so she could go do her shopping. She was able to get on the car, but she was pinned in by buggies of reshop, which is all the stuff that's returned that needs to be put back out and reshopped. And so, I don't think the elder lady was getting too angry, but her daughter was getting really frustrated because she couldn't get the girl behind the counter to come help her. And the girl behind the counter has a lot of like 15 angry people waiting. It's really tense. And this girl behind the counter is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the hall. She was so calmly, she answered everyone with such calm, with such compassion. And she went, she helped this lady with just this, man, just the very air around her just seemed to ooze patience. And she helped her out, and they were on their way, and the angry people walked off. You know, the situation wasn't diffused, but she, the patience that she had was amazing. And I didn't get to talk to her about it, but she must have been a Christian. I cannot imagine patience like that not brought about by the Holy Spirit. But that's patience. How much does it take for you to get ticked off at somebody? How much room do you leave for people's 
shortcomings, for people's mistakes, for people's sins before you get ticked off. And for me, I compare that to my reaction to a poor little boy when he comes in my room in the middle of the night having to go to his bed. And I get frustrated, like, like he did this to me on purpose or something. <laughs> I mean, this passage lays me bare. I'm sure he'll really appreciate what he's over me using the only his words in examples. So love is patient, love is kind. That just means what it sounds like. It dispenses good for me with his words, with his actions. Love is kind. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. And love does not brag. Love does not wish that other people were brought down to its level. And when it's lifted up or doing well, it doesn't brag, it doesn't boast. And I doubt many of us would verbalize bragging too much, because that's kind of obvious that that's wrong. But God hears what you're saying to yourself in your heart, too. Love is patient, kind, not jealous, doesn't brag, it's not arrogant. Arrogant means literally puffed up. You know, people who are puffed up to such a size that there's no room for you anymore in the conversation. You know, they already have the I'm right, you're wrong look on their face before you even begin the conversation. Love is not like that. It does not act unbecomingly. It's properly respectful. It's properly polite. Now, how are you doing up to this point? You're taking the love test. How are you matching up so far? Probably not too, too bad, really, so far. A lot of these are kind of culturally mandated anyway. You know, you don't go around wearing a gold chain that says, I'm awesome all the time. <laughs> some might, you know, they're sure some might. But the list takes a turn. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, youth, they told me 12 o'clock. I can't believe it's 12 o'clock. Okay. Coming down on this love now, promise. The list takes a turn now. Love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. I know it will, I know it's twelve. Love does not seek its own. You know, this one almost says it all. I can pretty much leave it at this one. Have you do you know what the statistics are? Maritally, of how many years before the love just seems to be gone. And people use phrases like, just don't love them anymore. Well, love does not seek its own. So, what are you really saying when you use a phrase, I just don't love you? You just say what you mean. What you mean is, I just don't feel like I receive benefit from you anymore. And that was never love. Love is an outward. Love is not provoked. 
he makes me so mad. No, he doesn't. You had anger in you. He bumped you and sloshed out. <laughs> Love does not take into account wrong suffering. Some of you, I know, if you have to leave, understand. I promise I'm not going to make this a habit. I don't know how this happened this morning. Some of you are fifth third bank. And the people around you don't even know it, but they all have accounts. And every time they step on your toes, they do something you don't like, they make a deposit. They have no idea. But you know, and you are keeping the talent. You are a great accountant. Love does not do that. It doesn't consider things done wrong to them. It doesn't take that into account because it's not seeking its own. It's seeking the good of others. It does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes, hopes, endures all things. I don't have time to go into all those. I, to make a long story short, I hope you are getting a vision of love that you cannot obtain. I can't love like that. I cannot love like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm selfish. You cannot love like that. You know, another famous place in the Bible where love is mentioned is in Galatians where they talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And all in this context, Paul's talking about how the Spirit gifts us for ministry in the church. Love is the first thing mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. See, love is not an emotion the way God thinks of it. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in you. So I'm hoping that you're not walking out of here thinking, all right, I'm going to be really awesome at loving people. I'm hoping you walk out of here broken knowing, I can't love like that. But by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can bring about that heart change in me. He can take out the selfishness in my heart, put in the selflessness, so I can love.
who is free from fearing people and using people, free to love people. And then, our ministry, the Duelist Grow, then it will be meaningful. The vine will grow. Lord, may it be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.